0: That's C-O-N-C-U-R The
1: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
0: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of A.I. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? It's time for a Tech Stuff classic episode. This episode originally published back on July 15th, 2015. It is titled, Who Wants to Live Forever? It's really about digital immortality, and the great Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know joins the show on this episode. Hope you enjoy. I have a feeling the title of this episode will be Who Wants to Live Forever? Right. Because I'm a big fan of Queen. <laughs> Is that but, a Queen song? Yeah, Who Wants to Live Forever. That came from the soundtrack to the hit film Highlander.
1: Oh. Cult classic. Did Queen do the whole soundtrack or they did, did. They no. did. Yeah.
0: Highlander and Flash Gordon. They did the whole I knew the soundtrack. Flash Gordon one. Yeah. I
1: did not know Highlander. And I saw Highlander the other day and I was like, this does not hold up. No, the
0: movie is one of those that I wish we could just wipe from history and redo because the concept is amazing. Yeah. But that's not what we're going to talk about. Although there are immortals in Highlander.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the connection, right? I guess so. Well, I, or Queen, yeah. your love of Queen and Queen doing the Highlander soundtrack. Right. There's the connection. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's it, ultimately it all goes back to, uh, uh, Tesla. No, we're going to be talking about digital immortality, this concept of using technology to extend our lifespans indefinitely.
1: Yeah, to immortality.
0: Yeah, to the point where uh, essentially until the sun burns out. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the great heat death of the
1: universe. Yeah.
0: I mean, it? yeah, because you could, in theory, if you were had digital immortality, there's nothing stopping you from hopping on a spaceship and hightailing it somewhere
1: else sure you know or being transmitted at near the speed of light
0: yep yeah you could be beamed from one point to another and sure if you I wonder what that experience would be like
1: well maybe that it's that's the future of space travel physical space travel is as digital beings yeah rather than maybe that's the wall we keep banging up against is the physical limitations, and then that will finally unbridle us and allow us to really do like interstellar travel, intergalactic travel.
0: Though, presumably, you would have to have something you're beaming into,
1: because well, you're yeah. just purely
0: digital, then you have to have something to house that information. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could just be literally just information beaming around, but I don't know how... I wonder what that experience would be like. Well, I wonder think, if it'd be like going to sleep.
1: Think about a laser. Yeah. A laser doesn't have any sort of, um, infrastructure. You right. can just beam and point. Yeah. And you're transmitting light information from sure. one place to another mm-hmm. at the speed of light, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what if we figured out a way to uh, digitize ourselves, as we'll talk about? Um, and we were able to beam ourselves in much the same way that a laser beams light.
0: Right. But the question is then, cause if we are digitizing ourselves, we're usually talking about that with the the understanding that that digital information rests on top of some physical architecture, right? Just as software needs hardware to run
1: off of, right? You need like fiber optics now. Yeah, I'm so, saying, what if you remove that? What right. If we figure out a way to remove it, then there's no limit. Yeah, if you to if you can get
0: to a point where we become pure information and there is no need for a physical infrastructure beneath that mm-hmm. then we're golden you know, Although, there's no limit then
1: i guess we would need some sort of receptacle to beam into even on the end even yeah. if we don't have something connecting the two that's, points that's else, what i was kind of getting at the idea being that if yeah, i if i flaw in my, <laughs> my, my so
0: you just gotta send someone ahead like all right bill it's your job to set up all these these cpu towers don't let us down bill
1: <laughs> do not let us down
0: right, make sure they're all plugged in and Please use one of those uninterrupted power supplies. Yes. Cause if, if there's a blackout, we don't want, you know, oh, we lost Lucy.
1: Right. She and didn't make it over. Please don't smoke while you're setting them up, Bill, because we could smell it last time. It stunk up the whole place.
0: Right, right. So to get down to what we're actually talking about, you probably picked up on this. The idea of digital immortality largely revolves around this concept of somehow transferring human consciousness and experience Mm -hmm. into a digital format. Right. Usually the way we describe it is uploading your brain into a computer. Right. That's kind of the easiest way to explain it. And there are a lot of really smart people who have been talking about this possibility uh, beyond saying it's hypothetical, saying it will be possible
1: or it will happen. A lot yeah. of people strut around like they're just cock of the walk saying it's going to happen. And some sometimes they even put like dates on things like this.
0: Oh, yeah. No, the, the guy we got to talk about immediately is Ray Kurzweil. Sure. Kurzweil, uh, famous for his uh, futurism predictions, including the idea that we will reach what is called the singularity. That is the point at which technology is evolving so quickly that there is no meaningful way to describe the present right. because it's changing that fast.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, and, the, and the way I always think about yeah. singularity is usually it's also the moment where um, one of two things has just happened. Either um, an AI has awakened and become conscious, mm-hmm. right? right? And therefore we it is now the master of the universe as far as we're concerned. Or... We, it's the moment we merge biology merges with technology, at a point where we're able to um, remove ourselves from the limitations of evolution and chart our own course from that point on.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. I would argue that there's also uh, there's the possibility of developing um, technology that allows us to genetically alter ourselves without having to directly incorporate. Like computers or electronics into our systems, that also can be—it's transhumanism—is right. really what we're talking and about here.
1: We're like right there. Yeah, we're, it, we're on mean, the cusp. I mean, it's cuss. already kind of happening, like very crudely, but yeah. it's—we're it, like right there well, as far as that last definition. You gave.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, we're there. Well, even with the incorporation of technology, we're getting there. You look at things like cochlear implants, yeah, right? And and while this is this technology is specifically meant to give people who have either lost or never developed a particular uh, uh, sense or maybe some other form of, of neurological process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right now it's meant to address that right. in the future. It could be meant to augment, not just to to repair damage or to address a loss of something.
1: Right. Like the the defining characteristic of transhumanism is that um, you don't want A uh, a blade prosthetic leg, right? Because the one you were born with was removed, right? You want a blade prosthetic leg because you want to be able to run faster right it's not to it's not to uh, make up for a loss it's to further
0: right it's to go the improve. next step yeah. exactly so uh this this singularity idea is very closely related to digital immortality and largely because of Ray Kurzweil because as it turns out I think it's fair to say Ray Kurzweil has an issue with the concept of mortality
1: yeah I was wondering like I don't know that much about Kurzweil I mean I'm slightly familiar but you clearly know a lot more about him than I do and I was was wondering if he is a um, like a fretful fanny like does he constantly worry about misstepping and dying you know and people die in really weird random mundane ways sure. every day yeah and i wonder if he just lives in literal mortal fear of that well he
0: he is certainly taking great precautions to extend his life because he does believe firmly that we will reach this point in which technology will allow us to extend our lifespans indefinitely within his lifetime if he takes care of himself. Right. So he, he is determined. He doesn't, I mean, you would kind of feel like a, like a doofus yeah. if you, you know, if you were capable of feeling, if you died the day before they invented digital immortality. Right. <laughs> like, it's well, like,
1: shucks. Right. It's the, like the last guy to die in a war right after, yeah. like right before the ceasefire has been right, called or right. something. Right.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's a great, um, have you ever seen, uh, there's a British sketch comedy show called that Mitchell and Webb look? Have you ever seen no, that? No,
1: you've told me about it though.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a uh, two comedians, uh-huh. uh, uh, David Mitchell and Robert Webb yep. who do this series. And one of the ones they, they have is, it's just supposed to be a off the cuff. Conversation between the two. So it's not in the context of a sketch.
1: So basically like what we're doing.
0: Kind of what we're doing now, except it's obviously scripted. <laughs> no, uh, and okay. ours is not.
1: No, clearly. But,
0: but in that case, they have a conversation where David Mitchell is very upset with the thought that his generation is going to be the last generation to die. Yeah. And he is spiteful of the <laughs> of the next generation. <laughs> right. He's mad at them for being able to live forever while he has to die. Yeah. Whereas Robert Webb is like, you could just be happy for them. <laughs> and he says, no. <laughs> Same sort of thing I think with Kurzweil is that he's um taking great pains to take care of himself. He's he's uh, uh, advocate for a healthy diet and exercise, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He takes something like 150 dietary
1: supplements. Uh, I'm going to have to correct you. And this is from the article that you wrote, 250. Oh wow. A day. Yeah. 250 a like day. He's just constantly taking pills.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's, uh, and, and there, there are plenty of studies that have suggested that unless you are suffering a deficiency of some sort, these supplements are not actually helpful.
1: Well, um, it's kind of like um, vitamin A, I believe. Vitamin A uh, is known to help you see better. Mm -hmm. pretty sure it's vitamin A. Yeah. Um, And it's been shown that if you're, especially like night vision is a little Mm -hmm. deficient, that if you eat some carrots, your night vision will improve. So carrots do help you. Right. But if it's already up to whatever your baseline night vision level is, you you can not eat all the carrots in the world. And it's not going to help. As a matter of fact, you will turn orange. My wife yep. turned a little orange because she liked carrots so much when she was a kid. So, But she couldn't see any better beyond her baseline night vision level. Right. It's so same, I think it's the same thing as what you're saying. Same thing with vitamin C. Right. right?
0: Once you hit a certain level of vitamin C, anything beyond that, you're essentially just going to pee away.
1: And in fact, vitamins can become toxic. So oh, much yeah. of anything is 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 toxic to the human sure. body because it seeks homeostasis, right? Right. So I'm wondering if Kurzweil, surely he's smart enough to know, like, hmm, maybe I should cut this one out or yeah. maybe I'm taking too much of this. Well,
0: it's also possible that the reported number of supplements that he takes has mm-hmm. been, you know, exaggerated as it's been reported over and over again, Uh, I I am personally a little skeptical that he takes that many. But at any rate, the the whole point is that he wants to make certain to live long enough to see the day when his prediction comes true, that that we will have the technological ability to port a person's mind into some kind of electronic construct. We'll be back with more of this classic episode of Tech Stuff after this quick break. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I have just, while you were speaking, pulled out my uh, calculator, and uh, Ray Kurzweil takes a pill every 5.76 minutes a day, <laughs> assuming he stays up all 24 hours in a day.
0: Assuming, again, that that number is, in fact, accurate, yeah. the, the number of supplements, not that I completely trust your math. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about some of the the concepts here about how this could, in theory, happen. Now, obviously, we are not at the point where we can create any kind of hardware and or software that would allow us to uh, to migrate an intelligence from our meaty brains. Right.
1: And that's a huge problem, what yeah. you just said. we We are dealing in something called software hardware mm-hmm. when what? The substrate that our, our brains and consciousness exist on is what you would term wetware. Yeah. It's biological material. Yeah. And we're, it's not necessarily analogous to a computer. Even yeah. though people tend to think of the brain as such, that doesn't mean that it is the same thing.
0: That is absolutely correct. I mean, let, let's take memory for an example. Memory is a great way to illustrate the difference between a computer system and the brain. All right, so in a computer system, uh, you end up designating a certain space on some medium. Right. Like uh, on magnetic tape or mm-hmm. in certain, um, you know, it, it all depends on whatever the form is that you're saving it to. But at any rate, it all ends up being zeros and ones. Right. And it is unaltered. Uh, if you call up a file and, you know, it, you haven't done anything to it since the last time you looked at it, it's going to be exactly the same. Right. there, Unless there's some sort of corruption in the file... Uh, or you have made changes to it and then saved it again. Mm-hmm. You're not, you know, it's going to be the same experience every time. Right. Human memory, totally different. Yeah. Um, a memory is, and we only sort of understand memory. Uh, we don't have a full grasp on how memory works. That's true. But based upon what we do know, when you experience something, your brain creates a certain neural pathway in response to the stimuli you are experiencing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, right here in this room, my brain is thinking about my hair, your hair. Yeah. The heat in this room, the light in this room, little things. And I'm not noticing everything.
1: It's all making my hair look pretty good, isn't
0: it? Again, it, it, stark contrast with all the rest of the experiences <laughs> It is amazing hair. So the, the, the these these pathways are forming in my brain. Right. Later on. assuming that I have converted this particular experience to long-term memory, which Mm -hmm. is a pretty big assumption, honestly. (laughs) I can't remember what I podcasted about two weeks ago.
1: Yeah, I think my hair is going to make it into your long-term memory.
0: Uh, The more you say it, the more likely it's going to happen. When when I think back on it, my brain will reconstruct that same pathway. Mm -hmm. So the memory is essentially representative in the physical relationship between the, the various synapses that light up. When I have this
1: experience. Right. So there is a physical pathway that is retraced when you recall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's not like your memory of how great my hair looks is sitting in one little spot of your brain like it would be on a computer's magnetic tape.
0: It's distributed and it's faulty because when I remember the process of remembering Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, that pathway doesn't form exactly the way it
1: did. And sometimes it adds new stuff. Exactly. I, I might fill in some gaps. Like, imagine if you opened a, a PowerPoint presentation that you'd made. Yeah. And... uh there were a few slides missing, but then there was some new stuff, and maybe it was a little bit better than yeah. it was before, but you <laughs> hadn't like, done anything I to don't it.
0: remember this transition, but all right, we'll go with it. Just yeah. the
1: very act of retrieving it from your computer's memory and opening it again mm-hmm. changes it. Right. That doesn't happen on a computer, but it does in, in human memory is what right. you're saying, right?
0: Exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying, and the reason why I say it is that That's a problem because if we are ever to move from wetware inside our brains to hardware and software Mm -hmm. in the digital realm, unless we factor that in somehow, like we create an algorithm that mimics the experience of remembering something, the experience is going to be fundamentally different. The experience of remembering will be totally different. I mean, one of the reasons why I very much argue against eyewitness testimony for things, especially for crimes that might have happened a long time in the past, is that our memories are faulty. Very. Now, if we were in this other experience where we had moved to hardware and software and our memories were more analogous to computer memory... That would not be an issue. Sure,
1: would eyewitness stuff recall. would be great.
0: Yeah, so but that, that's a, that's an, just one illustration of how this is a tricky thing.
1: It is tricky, and you say that you know, comparatively speaking, it sounded like your take on it was that human memory is faulty compared to computer memory. I I would posit that there's also another way to look at it that mm-hmm. um, human memory is much more robust and rich than computer memory. Because think about it, when you say smell something for the first time, and then you smell it again and again, that that memory of what something smells like is going to become more detailed. There's Mm -hmm. going to be more to it. It'll become more refined. And it'll be totally different from that first scent memory that you created of whatever it was you smelled. Mm -hmm. And so I would posit, again, Sorry to use that word twice, no, but fine. it makes me sound pretty smart when I do. It does, pretty good. <laughs> um, that that additional adding new material, adding new stuff to it when mm. you recall things or when you experience something, the ability to make your memory more robust and more rich, and and to be able to refine it just through recall, to me, is superior to just straight. Here's the information that a computer will give you, and it 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 should be. Exactly what you had before,
0: and also with memories, we can associate stuff that previously was not connected in our brains. Mm -hmm. Whereas with computers, the way you do that is through metadata. You tag stuff. Right. You're like, okay, well, let's tag this piece of information with all the metadata we can think of that 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 describes what this information is really about. And then, if I want to associate things, I have to look for similar tags.
1: Exactly. Like,
0: but but in my brain, it does it autom- automatically, and it does it in ways that you cannot necessarily anticipate, which can lead to things like innovation, right. creativity.
1: Yes, precisely. And you also kind of hinted at something that's uh, the the big problem facing the idea of uploading ourselves onto the internet, Strick. It is that with with memory. Mm-hmm. We can figure out memory. We'll, we'll eventually figure out how human memory works exactly. Right. And that's what there's a a philosopher called David Chalmers. Mm -hmm. That's what he's pointed out as the easy problem of consciousness. We understand, we're going to understand how the mind functions.
0: Yeah. Sometime down the road. Right. We will figure that out.
1: There's a hard problem is what, what Chalmers has also pointed out Mm -hmm. in figuring out how Phenomenal experience. Our experience of reality is produced from those processes. Sure. That, that is the big issue that is facing us trying to upload ourselves onto the internet. It's like when you talked about meta. Mm-hmm. The computer's not writing meta itself. It might be able to simulate memory retrieval in mm-hmm. its own way, but it's not writing its own tags. Right. It's not making these connections. It takes a human consciousness to do that. And not only do we not know how to make a computer simulate that, we don't even know how we do that. And we may never know. There's a lot of philosophers out there that are like, we may never figure out the hard problem of consciousness.
0: Yeah. We've got more to say in this classic episode of Tech Stuff after these quick messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Neuroscientists would say that clearly the mind, which is what we could probably, you know, use as an umbrella term for things like consciousness and experience uh-huh. you know, like intelligence right. and intelligence and that kind of stuff. That that uh, emerges from the physical construct of the brain, uh, because you can you can observe changes to the mind yeah. when someone suffers an illness or injury that damages the brain. Right. And therefore, it stands to reason that the mind, in fact, is a product of the brain. So if you could figure out how to simulate a brain to a significant level of sophistication, hypothetically, you could have intelligence emerge naturally from that simulation
1: hypothetically
0: Hypoth- because we can't do it yet right the the best we can do right now is to simulate a few thousand neurons but there are you know we're talking about billions of neurons and synapses in the human brain
1: yeah uh, from what i saw the low but average estimate is something like 86 billion in yeah. a normal human brain No, I'm sorry, not synapses, neurons. Yeah, neurons. It's trillions of synapses.
0: Right, right. So it's it's incredibly complicated. And in fact, there are some people who suggest that it may be to truly simulate a human brain, you may have to go down to the molecular level, at which point the computational requirements for simulating that brain are going to be so vast as to be impractical or impossible to achieve.
1: Well, you mentioned the Blue Brain Project in this article that you wrote. Um, And I I was just kind of skimming their website, and they mentioned that, in their simulations, it requires about a laptop's worth of computing power. They didn't say what kind of RAM or hard drive for storage or anything it had. Sure, they just used a laptop's worth. So you can kind of let your imagination run with it. But that that was required just for one individual neuron. Yeah, to power. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, eighty six uh, billion laptops worth, which
0: is <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's you know should be great news for. Any, Lenovo. Exactly. So <laughs> Any hardware manufacturers out there. Um, there are actually quite a few different uh, projects out there that are attempting to simulate brains for one reason or another, mm-hmm. not necessarily mm-hmm. so that we can port consciousness to them, but also to just study things like, uh, you know, how our brains work, how we might be able to treat brain damage or illnesses that that uh, damage the brain that um, how how certain medications might react right. to our brains, yeah. it, building these very complex simulations. So some of them, uh, MIT has a course on the emergent science of connectomics.
1: I've seen that lately too. It sounds so full of BS, <laughs> but apparently it's it's a real deal. And, and once you look into it, it makes total sense. It's yeah. just a terrible name. Connectomics is all about <laughs> the connections
0: that happen within the brain. Right. And yeah, it does. It Connectomics sounds like, a, sounds like it's some sort of weird economics
1: course. Right. Or like a, maybe an L. Ron Hubbard book.
0: Yeah. Like Dianetics. <laughs> yeah. Dianetics Part 2, Connectomics. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, that's an example. There's the U.S. Brain Project. There's an EU Brain Project. There's the that's Google the brain, brain Project. One, right? Yeah. Isn't there? Yes. Okay. And there's the Google Brain Project. Uh, in 2012, they hired
1: mm-hmm. Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, he's their chief uh, engineer, I
0: think. Director of engineering. Yeah. Yeah, for, for, uh, specifically for the Google Brain Project. Uh, Which, they also, I mean,
1: clearly Google has just put their cars on the table. They're like, yeah. we're putting some serious resources behind figuring out how to get people on to digital consciousness.
0: Right. It's, it's one thing to think about this kind of, you know, armchair computer scientist, neuroscientist sort of approach, but they're really putting actual money towards research and development on yeah. this stuff, including hiring another guy named Jeff Hinton, who is a British computer scientist who's, who specializes in neural networks. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at using neural networks for lots of stuff, not just to simulate a, a human brain. I mean, that might be part of it, too. Sure. But neural networks can be really useful for processing different types of information for all sorts of applications.
1: Right. True. And also, I mean, if you think about it, just figuring out some of the efficiencies that the human brain is evolved to include mm-hmm. as far as networking goes, if you could just even get some insight or inspiration from that, that could help tremendously.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's some other great uh, things I can mention. There's um. Ted Berger, who is a professor at the University of Southern California's Center for Neuroengineering,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who built a prosthetic of the hippocampus. Oh wow! Now the hippocampus is large. It's the money gland. <laughs> hippocampus is, is large. Yeah, it's largely associated with the formation of memories. Yeah. Uh, also with incorporation of emotion, but uh, memory is a big part of what hippocampus sure. is involved
1: in. So I think it also. Um takes in sensory information and yes. determines what region it should be transmitted to, if it should go into long-term memory mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like kind I of like said, a, it's
0: a big deal. A big engineer in this case. And so uh, in 2011, came up with a proof of concept hippocampal prosthesis and tested it in live rats. In 2012, tested it in non-human primates. And supposedly sometime this year, they're going to test it in people.
1: Man, that is amazing. So like if you have some sort of damage to your hippocampus and you're no longer able to form memories, mm-hmm. then this would be the thing for you kind of.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, this could end up being depending upon the nature of uh of the the problem. I mean, it could potentially be a treatment for things like Alzheimer's, mm. um, whether or not that turns out to be the case. We'll still have to wait and see. But right. it is very promising.
1: Have you ever heard of Henry Mollison? I have not. He is like one of the uh, one of the more facent uh, one of the more famous patients. Mm. Or to save time, you could just say one of the more famous. Facents. facents, yeah. Um, uh, uh, in as far as memory studies go, because he had some, he had, I believe, uh, epilepsy, mm. and some old timey doctor gave him some brain surgery and messed up his his hippocampus, mm-hmm. and the guy was unable to form new memories from that point on. He could remember everything up to that point, mm-hmm. up to the surgery. Then, after that, it was almost like his brain refreshed every, I think, something like 30 seconds. Wow. And he was, he just lived in an institution and was fortunately taken care of by a few doctors that, like, really studied him, but also, like, really kept him from out the public limelight. Mm-hmm. His name wasn't published until after he died but he yielded a lot of information about how memories are formed thanks to the hippocampus but it sounds like he would have been a great candidate for that
0: yeah i i'm reminded of a and i have to trust other people's uh details of this because i have no memory of it i uh had there was a time where i i had a kidney stone okay and it was so bad that i had to go to the hospital yes and they treated me with a a very powerful painkiller
1: that just knocked your hippocampus out of convention? I
0: couldn't remember things. I had no short-term memory.
1: Well, it makes sense. Like also, when you're drinking, um, your hippocampal uh, function is is messed with. You mm-hmm. you are not forming new memories, mm-hmm. and you require the hippocampus to do this. So if you're doing something, if you're on drugs, if you have some sort of structural damage, if you have been drinking, like that's why you're you're not forming new memories. That mm-hmm. accounts for a blackout. That accounts right. for amnesia. Ah, uh, your hippocampus is just not functioning properly
0: exactly. Uh, there's another expert I want to mention, uh, Anders Sandberg of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. I am a huge
1: fan of that institute, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite people in the world works there his name's Nick Bostrom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that yeah, guy.
0: I know of Nick Bostrom. So Sandberg had said, uh, this is a quote, the point of brain emulation is to recreate the function of the original brain. So this is talking about actually creating a copy of a of a person's brain, not just the concept in general, but in the specific case of this person's brain, we're going to recreate it yeah. digitally. Neat. Uh, if run, it will be able to think and act as the original brain. We are now able to take small brain tissue samples and map them in 3D. These are at exquisite resolution, but the blocks are just a few microns across. We can run simulations of the size of a mouse brain on supercomputers, but we do not have the total connectivity yet. As methods improve, I expect to see automatic conversion of scanned tissue into models that can be run. The different parts exist, but so far there is no pipeline from brains to emulations. Now, he thinks that it may be very difficult to ever simulate memory in a computer the way that humans do for the very reasons we mentioned earlier. Um, He also points out that there is a problem with this particular approach as the scanning essentially damages or destroys the brain tissue because there's not a non-invasive way.
1: Oh, it's like Heisenberg all over again, huh?
0: You got to pretty much crack the noggin open and mush around in the gray stuff to find out, you know, to really scan it and get that resolution. So
1: then... This, this, uh, scanning would either kill you. Yeah. Or you need a freshly dead person, in which case there's no longer consciousness. There.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Oh, well, that so, sounds like a
1: big problem. So you
0: could make, you could make a copy of a dead brain, which, as you point out, not really that useful. Right. Or you could make a copy of a living brain, but in the process you kill the living brain, you are left with the copy. Right. Now, theoretically, this copy would think and react in a way That would be exactly the way the original person thought and reacted. Mm -hmm. But the original person's still dead. So, Josh, if you had this done, there would be a Josh computer. JoshBot 2000. A JoshBot would think like you, would have quips like you. Now with even better hair. With even better hair than (laughs) you. And feel somewhat smug about it. Right. Uh, Meanwhile, Josh Clark, the human being, would be no more. Dead. And this comes to another big problem in the concept Mm -hmm. of digital immortality, which is continuity. Sure. So continuity being the continuous experience of you as Josh Clark, whether you are in your meat body or ported over to some digital format.
1: I don't think that's that big of a problem. Really? Think about it, man. Every day, there, we, we have gaps in continuity. We go to sleep, and ah, then we wake up. But you're and, talking
0: about functional continuity. There's also physical continuity, and there's the real problem.
1: Oh, well, lay it on me.
0: So functional continuity is exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's our, our experience that we are having, and it does have interruptions, whether it's when we go to sleep or, or we are put under for a surgical. stones or yeah, something. Exactly. It, all of that it could end up being a break in our functional continuity. Right. We can recover from that because the physical continuity, the stuff that's in our brains is still there so that even though we have that reset, we can come back and everything will be fine. Right. If the physical continuity is destroyed, as in the actual brain dies, then mm. you have a problem. Now, an interesting thing is that I've looked at some neuroscientists, uh, and their work and what they have to say about this. And it was really interesting to me. There's a guy named Stephen Novella. Mm-hmm. He's a neuroscientist, uh, works at Yale. He has a great podcast called Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is a critical thinker and a skeptic. Uh, he has talked a lot about this as well. He's blogged about it. And his idea or his the, his perspective, the way he he communicates it, is that as humans, we have brains that are divided into two hemispheres. Now, through drugs or through surgery, you can have one of those hemispheres separated from the other, it essentially is rendered inactive. Right. But the two hemispheres are largely copies of each other. So even if this does happen, you can have a relatively normal experience. You might ha- find that some things are now very hard to do, mm-hmm. like math. That could end yeah, up being really difficult.
1: If your corpus callosum isn't there, I would guess math would be hard.
0: Exactly, yeah. So he says, but... These two halves, which individually can act as a single brain, Mm -hmm. work together. And we have, you know, even if you have the one shut down, the other one can continue to work. You're still you, largely you. Right. So he says, what if we then extend this and we make the assumption that, yes, we have created the hardware and software that will allow for the simulation of a brain in, in some way? We connect that to a person's brain mm-hmm. so that it becomes an extension. You know, it's an, another part of the brain, kind of like a third hemisphere, I okay. guess. Yeah. And um and so this one is starting to form pathways that mimic what your brain does right. naturally. Right. So over time, it helps you think the way you think mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. It 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 also starts to build in uh, redundant memories. So it's essentially backing up your memories.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And gradually, it's going to act like it, uh, another hemisphere of your brain. Right. And yeah. it could even be more powerful, potentially. You could do things like include algorithms that like make it way easier for you to do math. Right. You'd be a math genius.
1: I would hope that if I were uploaded on the internet my math skills would just automatically improve. <laughs> I would expect that.
0: Yeah, you are certain little like base <laughs> assumptions you want to make, right? <laughs> right? That's one of them. Yeah. Like it would be it would be funny to be uh, no, digitally immortal
1: but crap at math. Right. So I guess you get made fun of by all the other digital immortals.
0: Very likely, you know, the Kurgan is just taunting you before cutting off your digital head. <laughs> uh, so the his point being that over time You would be relying more heavily on the AI version of your brain that even while your meat brain goes to sleep, Mm -hmm. your AI brain could stay awake so that, you know, you you as you could remain active all day long because, it's you know, it's it's your organic brain that's sleeping, but your AI brain takes over. Yeah. And it could get to a point where you don't even really notice that part of you is asleep. And you could theoretically reach a point where your AI brain is doing the vast majority of the work so that the time when your organic brain dies Mm -hmm. is a non-event to you. Well, I hope that you really got a lot out of that classic episode of Tech Stuff. If you didn't, don't worry, Josh Clark will be back next week because this ended up being a two-parter. So we will continue our discussion about digital immortality on that Episode next week. If you have suggestions for topics we should cover on episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is Tech Stuff HSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment...